0: Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper.
1: And I'm Aaron Matty. How are you, Katie? It's
0: hot. It's very hot.
1: It's hot. It's cooking, but not as hot as it is over for our oh my friends in Europe.
0: Over the pond. Yeah. It's, it's tough right now. Yeah. It's really tough right now. People are just dying. Yeah. That's the world we live in. Yeah. And, and uh, being in a
1: proxy war with uh, one of the world's top energy producers also isn't helping either because now right. countries in Europe have to ration energy and limit cooling and limit gas consumption so great great timing for a proxy war always
0: it's great yeah i mean it's always a great time for proxy war but it's even especially good right now
1: yeah so just wait till winter comes it's gonna be even better
0: well at least people won't die of uh of heat they'll just maybe die of hypothermia
1: there we go yeah
0: god this is such a dark world we're living in
1: it is well we're here to lighten it up with this week's four food
0: groups Yep, four basic food groups. So for this week's four basic food groups, we got, uh, I got Democrats suck. So uh, this is this is an interesting curveball because you're going to be like, why is this a Democrat suck? This sounds like Republicans suck. So let me just start. Reading from Democracy Now. Voters went to the polls Tuesday for a primary election in Maryland. The Trump-backed far-right state legislator Dan Cox won the Republican gubernatorial primary. Last year, Cox helped organize buses to Washington on January 6th when he called Vice President Mike Pence a traitor for not supporting Trump's effort to overturn the election. If elected, Cox has vowed to conduct a forensic audit of the 2020 election. He also wants to ban abortion in Maryland and end what he describes as sexual indoctrination in schools. Now, why is this a Democrat suck? Because the Democratic Governors Association spent over $1 million helping elevate Cox's message as part of an effort to help the primary campaigns of far right candidates that Democrats hope will be more vulnerable in the November general election. This is called the I believe the Pied Piper strategy,
1: because the idea is to get Republican followers to follow the Pied Piper, which will then lead them to destruction.
0: Right now, you may have heard of this before. This happened in a minor election, which didn't have that many that much of a, I guess, consequence when (laughs) you think about it on a global scale. If you really zoom up or take a real (laughs) bird's eye view from another planet, uh, which was, of course, Donald Trump and the democrats uh also encouraged his rise during the primary because they thought he was such a joke and so repulsive and so um odious that he would of course help the democrats get into office. Now, newsflash that didn't work. It got Donald Trump elected.
1: Didn't work. They were so into it though that Bill Clinton even called Donald Trump reportedly and to encourage him personally to run because they were friends at that point.
0: Right. Right. They, had they had gone the to weddings together. Yeah.
1: Exactly, with uh Jeffrey Epstein and all and that whole crew. So yeah, Bill Clinton used his personal connection to encourage Trump to run, and that got them Trump humiliating them in twenty sixteen. So right. great job to try that again. I'm sure that's yeah, kind of great job longer.
0: to try that again. Yeah, they definitely got the memo on from that experience. They're doing it also in uh, Pennsylvania with Mastriano, who's another right wing lunatic. So uh, maybe he'll get in too, and we'll have a bunch of them. Fingers crossed, right Dems. So what do we got for Republicans suck?
1: So for Republicans suck, we have uh, one of Republicans top passions, which is banning abortion and also cutting back on Medicaid. So we're combining two passions of, of Republicans here. This is a headline in the San Antonio current. It says Texas officials celebrated end of abortion rights after cutting back postpartum Medicaid extension. The article says, While celebrating last month's Supreme Court decision overturning the right to an abortion, Governor Greg Abbott pointed to the millions of dollars in spending that state lawmakers approved to help pregnant women and new mothers. Among the measures he touted was a law that extended Medicaid health care coverage for a pregnant woman until six months after they give birth or miscarry, exceeding the federal government's requirement that states provide at least two months of the benefit. Abbott's statement neglected to mention that Texas lags behind at least 20, 33 states, including 11 led by Republicans, all of which have already expanded or are working with the federal government to extend postpartum Medicaid benefits for a full year after giving birth. So basically, Abbott is bragging about how he's going to be there to support pregnant mothers after forcing mothers to carry the fetus to term, all while cutting back the number of be- the months of benefits that they get uh, to have that pregnancy, so most other states or many other states get twelve months. Abbott is saying, Let's just give them six months, and then they can fend for themselves.
0: I feel like Aaron, you didn't do justice to to this great Republican pastime because you did say that they like um blocking access to abortion, so they do like taking away women's right to choose. And then I think you said that they like cutting well what what did you say? they like cutting benefits in general? Yeah. Well, you know what they really like doing, though, on top of that, is they like cutting benefits to babies as soon as they're born, Mm, a little grace period of six months. You know, I guess they want to give them six months. But this is this is such a beautiful like you can't make this up. They really care. They're very pro-life when it's not a viable human being. But once it's born, not so much.
1: Yeah, you're on your own. Then You got
0: to fend for yourself. Yeah,
1: exactly. And this article also points out that Texas is among a dozen states that have also declined to expand broader Medicaid coverage under the Affordable Care Act to additional people with low incomes, leaving it with some of the strictest eligibility requirements in the country. For example, single parents with one child must earn $196 or less a month to qualify.
0: Holy fuck, $196 or less a month
1: to qualify. Yeah. For healthcare. If you make above that, sorry, you can't,
0: if you make $200 a month, you're rolling in dough. You don't need any help.
1: Yeah. No healthcare for you.
0: These people are such sadists. Yeah. Disgusting. I would love to do a brain scan on them to see what happens in their brain when they're doing this stuff.
1: They probably derive some glee. This is what they live for. It's
0: disgusting. Yeah. Wow.
1: Anyway, good candidate though for Republican stuff. Great
0: candidate. I mean, no. the good news is that we had such a great candidate so that we can look on the bright side. Thank you, Republicans, <laughs> for making our job so easy. Yeah So for Isn't That Weird, we have a story, reading at the Wall Street Journal, uh, final DIY project, build your own coffin. For people who want to make their own final resting place, merchants offer ready-to-assemble kits. We just had so much fun. Visitors to Leona Oceana's home near Portland, Maine might notice the pine bookshelves perched in one corner of her living room. Garlanded by white lights, the shelves hold neat rows of books by her favorite authors, including Mark Twain and Edward Gorey, along with knickknacks such as a snow globe with a skull inside. Guests tend to check out, says Miss Oceana, Miss Oceana 52 years old, and administrator at a municipal public works department. Visitors may not immediately grasp the versatility of the bookcase. It might look like it came from IKEA, but it will eventually be a coffin. The shelves are designed to be removed easily, and one day the two sections of this bookcase are are to be joined with hinges to serve as Ms. Oceana's final resting place. To prepare for the inevitable, some people lay out instructions for their funerals or write their own obituaries. Then there are the other souls, including Ms. Oceana, who build their own coffins and use them as part of their household decor until needed. Death has always intrigued me. I don't think in a weird way, she says. Now, she's not the only person, Aaron, and viewers and listeners to do this. Uh, various merchants offer coffin parts or ready to assemble kits to make the task easier. Northwoods Casket Co- Company of Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, sells a build your own casket kit starting at $6.99. Pretty affordable, honestly. Jonas Azan, owner of Northwoods Casket, says the company sells about five kits in a typical month. The company's website says its assembly takes one to two hours and it features a blog post called So You Want to Build a Casket. <laughs> Uh, And buyers can add their own flourishes and creative designs. I've seen a lot of camouflage, Mr. Zahn says. Those in the DIY coffin camp give a range of reasons for taking matters into their own hands. Preparing for death may increase the odds of checking out in a pleasant manner. Having a burial box standing by perhaps means less trouble for the surviving family members. And it might be easier on the budget than buying commercially made coffin. And you can see these beautiful bookcases, which I guess somehow will turn into a a, a casket do you see that little cute skeleton by the way
1: gorgeous. gorgeous gorgeous skeleton yeah i'll say this that's the happiest skeleton i've seen in a long time
0: the skull not so much the skull looks a little down
1: it's tough to be a happy skull
0: it's tough to be a happy skull when you're separated from your body you're you're not as happy when you're Fair with enough. your body when the full skull full skeleton is preg- present it's a lot easier mm-hmm then we see someone else lying in a bookshelf. Joan Pillsbury climbed into her coffin to get a better angle for her drill. So what do you think of this, Aaron?
1: It makes sense if you want a coffin. My only question is though, should you want a coffin? Wouldn't the best thing for everybody, for your friends and family in terms of a hardship on them and for the planet just to get cremated?
0: I guess so. You could do a green burial. That's the thing apparently, but uh, cremated. Yeah, that's, that's. Yeah, cremated. What? Are, who was I talking about this? What are your thoughts on what should be done with the ashes? I mean, obviously it's up to the person, but are you in favor of scattering them or putting them in some kind of urn?
1: I think uh, that's up to the individual. All right. But I think those, you know, I think those those ceremonies where people go and they scatter the ashes, especially in a place that's significant to that person's life, I think those those are really beautiful yeah. things. You're returning them to the earth, right? Right. I find those moments very touching. That's what I'm going right, to do. We do. But, Are um, you? Yeah. You're gonna yeah. have that done. Yeah, I just don't want to take up space, space. as a cadaver, right. you know. But that's, that's my own. hey, yeah. everyone's got their own. Yeah. Preference.
0: No, we're not coffin chain. We're not coffin shaming. No. <laughs> yeah. At least not too strongly. No. Yeah.
1: No. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that's that. That's the. Isn't that weird?
1: That's the. Well, that's a very, very good weird. All right. So for isn't that terrible? We have. Uh, an incident from the world of fast food, which, you know, how many horror stories has the fast food industry provided us? Well, here's the latest one. Mom claims traumatized daughter found cigarette in Burger King fries. Traumatic. Well, if you think it's traumatic now, Katie, let's watch the video.
0: Oh my gosh, oh my goodness. As you see, it's from Burger King, so it's a little greasy, but you can see there were chicken fries ordered. And after eating six, as you see, we found a cigarette butt.
1: Oh my put gosh! Some light on
0: it. It is a Seneca menthol that my daughter found half smoked in her bag. Wow, that is terrible indeed. I mean, it's understandable because I got to say that cigarette looked a lot like the chicken fry in terms of the color.
1: It did look very similar. It's an easy mistake to make.
0: It's an easy mistake to make. I mean, yeah. it's probably happened to the best of us.
1: Yeah, and let's face it—you know, Burger King they're not known for their fries.
0: Ah, interesting. They're known for the Whoppers.
1: Right. The Whopper is really their signature dish. I think people generally elevate Wendy's and McDonald's fries over Burger King's. And so maybe it's really the fault of the consumer here for ordering the fries, knowing that they're not getting a top product and things like this are gonna
0: happen. Right, yeah, it's true. Like if you're not gonna order the best of the best, be prepared to uh, eat a cigarette. Exactly. (laughs) I thought you were going to say that people who order from Burger King are eating unhealthily and so what's a cigarette here or there. But you're actually saying it's not a question of the health. You're saying it's a question of the how top notch the cuisine is. I respect yeah, that. Yeah, I mean if you're, you know, that's not health shaming. That's different. Yeah. yeah.
1: I just feel like in the in the hierarchy of fast food fries that Burger King is not up there.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean we're I think we're getting a little bit into victim blaming territory but but you know what you got to check the first step in in preventing that is being aware of it. So I think we're also showing people what victim blaming looks (laughs) like so that they know not to do it.
1: Well, look, no matter how you feel about Burger King fries, let's all agree that a cigarette butt inside the fries is terrible. Hence, yeah, that was this week's. Isn't that terrible?
0: So what's what's new? Anything else on your mind, Aaron?
1: Well, let me just shout out the squad for voting for a new measure to expand NATO, adding Sweden and Finland which is great news for the military-industrial complex, which is even given a shout-out in this bill. Let me show the text. So this measure, which will expand NATO, open up a new NATO front, really, on Russia's borders via Finland, also has uh, this passage where, quote, it urges all members of NATO to meet the 2% defense spending pledge as agreed upon during the 2014 Wales Summit. And what that is is, At the summit, all NATO member states agreed, pledged, to ensure that they spend at least 2% of their GDP on the military-industrial complex. And so this is the squad and every other progressive member of Congress voting to urge NATO members to meet that pledge. Make sure you spend at least 2% of your GDP on the military-industrial complex. And I can tell you one person who will be very happy with that pledge. Here he is.
0: We expect a growing number of nations to meet the minimum 2% of GDP requirement. To address today's challenges, all members of the alliance must fulfill their obligations. They have no choice. They must fulfill their
1: obligations. So there you go. There is at least one guy who will be very happy that Democrats are making sure that all NATO member states spend 2% of their GDP on the military. His name is Donald J. Trump.
0: That's it sounds like almost like the way that you're saying it, it almost sounds like a telethon. Like we, we need to raise these funds. We can't do it without you.
1: We urge you. Yes, we urge you. Yes. It's really important that everyone spends at least two percent of their GDP on the military industrial complex. We can't be feeding people, giving them health care, building infrastructure. Right. Gotta make sure at least two percent yeah. goes to the defense industry.
0: And what do you get for that? You got a beautiful NATO tote bag. just so people don't people understand why is this dangerous what's happening right now
1: well look we're more than four months into a war in ukraine that is wreaking havoc especially for ukrainians and it's also causing a crisis around the world food prices have skyrocketed nuclear tensions are escalating there's no nuclear talks right now between the us and russia on renewing the treaties that limit the nuclear weapons stockpiles we have an energy crisis europe is facing the brunt of that so is africa and asia and we have domestic problems at home that are very very dire and instead democrats so far have been 100% behind biden's policy ro Khanna recently said one thing like what's the plan on the diplomatic front there is no plan the us won't even talk to russia about ending this war and by voting to expand nato and to encourage spending on NATO, aka the arms industry, Democrats are just fueling this fire and trying to um, speed up the race to extinction.
0: Yeah, well, it's going well. That's the good news is that's a they're right on schedule. All righty. Anything else you want to tell us about?
1: Well, I do have an update on a story we discussed a few weeks ago where The Guardian newspaper came out with this article calling me the most prolific spreader of disinformation on Syria and failing to provide any examples of this alleged disinformation or evidence. And so since then, I contacted the reporter who wrote the story, his name is Mark Townsend of The Guardian, because I wanted to see if he had any evidence. I also wanted to see why before he printed that, why he didn't contact me first. So I actually reached him on the phone and I had the video, which I published on my podcast, Pushback, and we have a clip of it here. So let's take a look.
0: To hear Aaron's call with Mark Townsend, go to usefulidiots.substack.com. All right, well, we have a great interview for you guys today. We are making history. It is our first interview with a Tony Award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning artist named Michael Jackson. Michael R. Jackson.
1: Yes, Michael R. Jackson is the Tony and Pulitzer-winning playwright, composer, and lyricist. Of the hit Broadway musical A Strange Loop, and we're very excited to speak to him.
0: Aaron, what are some of your favorite songs from A Strange Loop?
1: As I said, I've been listening to A Strange Loop on Loop, so I have a lot. The opening song, Intermission Song, is amazing. It's like a total classic American Broadway number, but it's also incredibly subversive. The way Michael adds in all these different elements and refrains. Uh, Me black and queer
2: American Broadway. Be- Yes, American Broadway.
1: Uh, the next song is called "Today," which I love as well. The next song after that is called "We Want to Know," which is Usher's oh, family great. singing to him about what's going on with his life, and it's beautiful and it's funny too. What's yeah.
0: going on in New
1: York? And then the big hit from the show is "Inner White Girl."
0: Yeah, it's great. It's really which is really
1: song. a great song. And the song I talked about, called "Periodically," which is Usher's mother confronting him about her, her bigotry. I mean, she's, she's homophobic and she's telling him how upset she is about his gay lifestyle, but Michael gives her such a beautiful melody. So as, even as she's saying these hateful, bigoted words, it sounds so beautiful and it's very emotional because at the end of it, Usher and the mother, they sing together and they sing her, like her bigoted words. And so he's, but he's doing a duet with her. So it's just really, Beautiful. And, th- and there's also a song called Memory Song.
0: That's one of my favorites. Oh, it's song. so
1: touching. And I mean, it's just, it's a genius show and I hope everyone who has the opportunity can go see it. Yeah. It's just incredible.
0: Welcome Michael R. Jackson. So excited to be talking to you.
2: I'm not talking to you guys.
0: So I, I know you've been asked this so many times, but tell us about the evolution of A Strange Loop, why you wrote it in the first place and how it got to be the award-winning uh, musical that it is today.
2: Um, it started off as a monologue that I started writing right after I graduated from undergrad. I was about 23 years old and I you know, was sort of scared about my future. I, I had just had a BFA in playwriting. I didn't know what I was gonna do with that. And so I started writing this monologue about a young black gay man sort of walking around New York wondering why life was so terrible. And it was called Why I Can't Get Work. It was just like sort of a thinly veiled personal monologue that I just wrote kind of as a way of making sense of things. Um, The world was sort of in a crazy place at that time. Like the U.S. was about to go to war with Iraq. I was living in the middle of nowhere, Jamaica, Queens. I had this BFA degree. It was just, I just needed something to make me feel like I had some control over something. And so I started writing this this piece. And, and then I went to grad school about nine months later. And I began writing music while I was there. And then the music started to work its way into the monologue. The monologue started to take shape into a one-man show that I performed. Then I decided I didn't want it to be a one-man show. Then I kept working on the sort of the book of it, the sort of story. And then that is when it sort of turned into what is now known as a strange loop. And then I sort of kept working on that and doing different readings and workshops over the years and concerts of music from the show. And, and, um, and then eventually we got our off-Broadway production in 2019. And then we did really well with that. Then the pandemic came and we were on pause, but then I won the Pulitzer in the midst of that. And then um, we did the show out of a pre-Broadway tryout in D.C., at the William Mammoth Theater Company. And then uh, we got our Broadway theater in December of 2021. And then we opened on Broadway in April of 22. So that was about 18 years from start to Broadway of just sort of like working on it and working on it and working on it.
1: And during this period, a lot of the cast members that are in the current production, they've been working with you on the show as a part of it for throughout this period, right?
2: Yeah, um, John Andrew Morrison, who was nominated for Tony for Best Featured Actor this year, has been singing the song periodically from the show since 2008, when I did my first New York concert at Ars Nova. And and Jason Beasy and L. Morgan Lee and James Jackson had sort of all been involved for a long, long time um,
1: early on. And for people who are just hearing about A Strange Loop for the first time, how would you describe it? The basic premise of the plot is it's about a theater usher named Usher, mm-hmm. who is writing a musical theater production about an usher named Usher, and Correct. he interacts throughout this process with thoughts—the thoughts, the thoughts mm-hmm. in his head, played by a amazing cast of people. He in the process though, we also uh, he also interacts with his family, or he yeah, who are also played by the actors who play the thoughts. So the thoughts sort of.
2: Transform from character to character to character, as he's sort of making his way through the writing of this musical that's about himself. And eventually, you know, he has sort of a self self realization at the end about himself.
1: It's sort of profound. So, one thing I want to ask you about is you when he interacts with his family. There's there's all these different aspects of his interactions with his family. And part of that I think is he's also interacting with fictionalized versions of his family as well. (laughs) Is that
0: fair to say?
2: Yeah, so there's like an early, there's like early scenes where you're seeing his mom played by the whole ensemble. And then you'll see like a later scene where his mom is played by one of them, but in this sort of like sitcom sort of version of what his family would be like. And then later you see his mom played by a different thought. And then that mom sort of takes us into the final family scene that's like a little bit more serious.
1: Yeah, and in this, you portray the family, the family comes off as both really loving and supportive of Usher. as he's, he's pursuing his theater dreams in New York, but also having very bigoted views um, of mm-hmm. him as a gay man. Right. And what I just noticed from the, so- the way the songs are written, for example, periodically, or Usher's mother sings to him about her concerns about his gay lifestyle is you still, even though she's saying all these bigoted things, you still uh, portray her with a lot of compassion, I think, as a writer. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of the complexity of life that he and I wanted to sort of express, which, which is that someone can, can have very bigoted views, but they also can like love you. And that those two things are not necessarily um, in conflict. I mean, well, it can be in conflict, but like they're they they can't. They sometimes can't be pulled apart from one another. And so, I just wanted to sort of offer the audience a sort of just a complex portrayal of of a mother's love for her son.
1: And you do it, I think, via the melody, because there's a part of periodically where she's singing to him about how concerned she is about. His, his gay lifestyle, but yet the melody you've chosen for those words is so beautiful. It's during yeah. at the very end.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like sort of a repeating melody that is sort of um, very melodic and very sort of almost like a lullaby. Yeah, and I just thought that that was like an important thing to to lead the audience with is that like I didn't want people to just get caught up on oh his like homo homophobic mother how horrible she is because i just think it's it's more complicated than that and i wanted the music to sort of um, to support the i uh, support the complexity of it
0: i was there when uh i saw it uh when i went to it uh playwrights horizon your parents were in the audience oh how yeah i forgot
2: you? you were there that day that's that's right yeah
0: what was that like
2: it was amazing because they had never seen any of my theater writing at like ever and I was nervous about them coming because they're not like regular theater goer people at all like that's just not part of their life and I was just worried if they just wouldn't like it or they wouldn't understand it or that it would you know what I mean that like that just as a piece of art that they would just be like what is this but they were like so into it and they sort of that day that you came was amazing because they kind of like stood in the lobby and like this whole crowd, like gathered around while my mom started sort of, and my dad sort of started talking about me and like, and it was just kind of, it was like a really um, crucial point, I think in our relationship, because suddenly I like, it was like, I came out again, but this time as an artist to them. And it was, and they were just, they were so proud and they were so impressed. And, and I, I think it like really um, was an important moment for us.
0: Did it lead to any conversations with them about your relationship?
2: Not really, because like, that's the thing that's, that's always like tricky for me to sort of explain to people about the show is that like, it's why I don't call it autobiographical because I did draw from personal experience, but I also made a lot of things up. And so there were things that they like recognized about, you know, our relationship, but they also could see that it was something else, and so there was nothing really to talk about other than like they would go, "Oh, is that that, or is this that, or whatever about it?" But like it, they just they they didn't they didn't really care about anything else other than like, "Wow, our child made this thing, and it's like really amazing," and they loved looking at everybody being so engaged around them, and they were into it, and they there were parts that they thought were funny or. Whatever you' know, you know, and and so it just was like there wasn't like a per, there wasn't like a deep family conversation that was needed to ha- that needed to happen between us. It just they just were proud of me and of it.
0: It's funny. My mom, uh, she's a novelist, and one of her I think her first published novel was a fictionalized memoir called The War at Home." Mm-hmm. and when she wrote it her mom was still alive my grandmother was still alive and in the novel which is very autobiographical you know it's about her kind of crazy abusive family and her her mom did a lot of speed and was charming but also a very bad mom in many ways and my grandmother was at the book party and she was just like please just punch uh <laughs> like I think partly it was because she could because it was fictionalized memoirs as opposed to you know totally true memoir she had that there was that distance that let her be proud of her daughter but also feel like a star
2: yeah i mean and there was and i just again just because i did fictionalize quite a lot and i'm like and everything in the musical is from usher's point of view who's like a young person who has sort of a distorted sense of self and so like and also just of his family so like there's a. There's also an aspect by which it's not even really about them like that because that all ultimately sort of fades away, um, especially toward the end when sort of the gospel play that he creates sort of disintegrates. And so for me, it's not it it ultimately does end up just being about him and not about anybody else. You know,
0: were you embarrassed? Like because there's a lot of sexual stuff in it. I'm not saying you should be embarrassed. I know I would be embarrassed to talk t- if my parents saw me, forget that it was me in the, in the thing, just me, were having written something like that. Were you at all embarrassed by that? Or are you a more mature person than I am?
2: <laughs> um, I don't know that I was embarrassed, but I definitely was just like, not sure how they would take any of it to the d- degree to which they would associate anything that was happening on stage with my own life. They then might like draw certain conclusions which as with everything else in the show, it's much more complicated than than what you just see on stage. And so I just was think I was just like, not sure how they would take it, but I wasn't like
1: embarrassed. One of my favorite songs of yours is not in a strange loop. It's called Judith. <laughs> And it's about your struggles to break out in the musical theater industry. And really, it's a song for anybody who's struggling to express themselves and to be heard at a time when it feels the world doesn't want to hear them. And, you know, and it's just about your, your struggles and, and the choruses. The industry will always be the industry. And I've given up, given a fuck what they think about me right so and that was written uh well before a strange loop blew up into the big into the most successful musical most acclaimed musical on broadway so i'm just wondering your reflections now back on that song and the you know the frustrations you were feeling when you wrote it
2: so the song judith was one that came about because of the actress judith light of whom it's named after she's if you've ever met her in real life, she's just a really incredible person. And she gave me like a, cru- me and the, the group of people I was with a really crucial bit of uh, advice. We were all in a, sort of like a session of her. She's sort of, in some ways is like a life coach, which is kind of amazing, she has, she does this thing where she like talks to artists about like their lives. And she came into the room and she sat down and she goes, I don't wanna talk about the industry, fuck the industry. The industry is the industry. She's like, tell me, you're all gonna make it. Tell me about your lives. And then she like (laughs) stares you in the eye and then she's like, what's going on? And she just like looks at you like, and she doesn't flinch and she just you start talking to her about things. And, And I was really inspired by listening to her talk to everyone and to me about, you know, people feeling struggles about where they were as writers or as people or whatever, or as artists. And I just started writing the song because I at that time definitely felt this sense of like, of, a, of, of not being where I wanted to be as an artist and wanting to do more. And so I wrote that song as just a way of sort of purging this idea that I had to, to fit into some sort of box or category. And so when I reflect back on it, what I feel is like that an artist, another artist inspired me to, to keep going and that that sort of advice really helped me uh, over like a, a, a sort of crucial hurdle that then sort of opened things up for the successives to
1: come. And what's so cool about your journey to me is you were uncompromising and sticking to your ethics and to your artistic voice. And your, your musical itself takes digs at the musical theater industry. And yet here you are now being totally embraced by it. And I imagine that's both a little uncomfortable, but also, I mean, it's got to be exhilarating.
2: Yeah, it's, it's also sometimes confusing, because the thing that i would sort of learned is that people who love the show or hate the show or whatever, everyone projects onto it whatever they want and I sort of had to like back away from what people's opinions of it are. Um, but like but yeah, it's it's in a way it's a strange look. It's that like the very thing that I was sort of railing against was the thing that helped me sort of rise, which is sort of reminds me, you know, the piece sort of owes a big debt to the artist Liz Fair, who has a song off of her first album, Exile in Guyville that says, I'm asking sweet Mary, please temper my hatred with peace, weave my disgust into fame, and watch how fast they run to the flame. And that has always been like a mantra of mine. Um, and I feel like that's sort of what ha- happens in a way with A Strange group.
0: What does that mean what you just said like what is that Liz, what do those Liz fair lyrics mean to you which I it, grew up listening it, to her in high school so well I'm what it
2: means what is that you sort of you you might start at the bottom of the of the food chain, but like the very thing that keeps you that like that keeps you at the bottom is the thing that can propel you to the top and I think that that's a big piece of what happened with a strange loop is that like I was sort of an outsider in many many ways and my outsider status is the thing that i wrote about and from and that ultimately ended up being the thing that people were most drawn to
0: i saw that you uh and the cast were visited by michelle obama uh what was that like and have you been visited by people who you've been critical of either like vocally oh, or on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> well, the
2: funny thing about it is that like I've actually gotten quite quiet over the last year, p- partly because out of, not not because of that, but because like I feel like the world has become so sort of um, tribalistic in its sort of culture war sort of t- stances. And I just am like, have become more questioning of of that and sort of more non-ideological than I've ever been in my life in that regard. And so I sort of, and also I got into like a sort of back and forth with somebody about a topic where I was like, I have two choices here. I can incinerate this person, which is very in my wheelhouse to like burn, I am actually a fire-breathing dragon, or I can just totally shut the fuck up forever. And I decided to shut the fuck up forever because I because it's all just trying to drain you of your energy. And so what but what that meant is that like lots of things would happen in the world that I wanted to comment on, but I just decided it's no, I, I'm not going to do it. So there are people who've come to the show who like I have been critical of, but in those moments, what I sort of have to do is just be gracious to them as like a as a guest who's in, who's come to the house, and they they paid their money for a ticket or they got a ticket or whatever, and they're there, and it's not going to go beyond that. Um, and so it's been a little strange on one level because I I know what what I think of them or, or or I know what critiques I've made in the past, but also like there they are shaking my hand and and they've been moved by the piece that they've seen and I've written, and so I have to take that into consideration as well. And I just sort of leave it there. And it's sort of, you know, and I feel like there was a time in the world wherein you could have, you know, political disagreements with people without it turning into World War III. Whereas now we live in a time where everybody is like, wanting to be the World War III they wanna see in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just like, I'm I'm, I'm for big peace. Isn't that what Jimmy Dore wow. always says? He's like for big piece, oh, right. the big piece. like real, even though he's like all super pugilistic about everything all the time. Um, but no, but no, we we love Jimmy. That so that's sort of the 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 compromise I've taken with that because like Michelle Obama came to the show, Pete and Chaston came to the show. Um,
0: wow.
2: a lot and of Pete like a, a lot of folks. I mean, and not just now. political people, but like you know, c- culture, pop culture figures who like, mm-hmm. I'm sort of RuPaul. like, yeah, you know, like, I mean, I don't really, I mean, RuPaul's like in the fracking or whatever. And, and RuPaul is one of our co-producers. So I, it's, I don't know, like, there's, what am I going to say? Like, there's in that moment, like, they're, they're there. They're grateful to be there. I'm happy they're there. Right. It's not, it's not a moment what I would choose to like, suddenly like start attacking them for some disagreement I have with them.
1: That's what's cool about art and music is it transcends all of that. And it speaks to a human experience that is deeper than politics. Right. Whenever some or sometimes when I'm arguing with someone politically and I'm feeling angry towards them, one way I disengage is I, I imagine, well, maybe both of us have been moved by the same piece of music before. Mm-hmm. Music does have the power to do that, to move people who are bitterly opposed and even maybe even hate each other. does have the power to actually move both of us. And I think that's just an amazing thing about it.
2: Yeah. And I think another thing that I also have learned is that like, sometimes when somebody's right there in front of you, you feel differently about them Mm. because most of the people who like, I've been critical of, I've never met them ever. And so like when they're in front of you, it's like, Oh, there's suddenly another human being standing in front of you. And you have to like, you don't have any choice other than to like, deal with whatever that makes you feel and like maybe you still are like oh you're like you know scum of the earth I mean I'm sure there are people who like if they came to the show there's some people like if they came to the show I would probably be like I probably would like I don't want to meet them because I have I feel so strongly but like I'm the thing I just have been learning because I've met so many people in general who come to the show who, like tell me what it means to them that it's forced me to be a lot more empathetic and a lot more just meeting at somebody where they are in the moment and not projecting my own whatever on top of them even if like I know we had disagreements and and that's also something that I've tried to do by inviting certain people to the show too who, like I know I might have disagreements with and, and you know, and I, I know that might sound like, oh, I'm promoting civility, but like and flexibility, you know, now, like, but that's sort of what I'm talking about, is that like I'm for I'm I want peace, you know, and like this is a small way to promote it, I guess. You know, who knows if that will work out in the long run, but it's I found it to be a profound way of sort of interacting in the world. In this moment when everything is so fraught and so you know binary and so like my way or the highway
0: i mean i didn't expect you to tell michelle obama like get out of here you neoliberal shell who's weaponized identity politics (laughs) but i was just wondering if there was like a if it felt weird and the other thing is you didn't you didn't have a huge i don't know if you've ever tweeted something about the obamas um oh but I definitely have. You have. Okay, yeah. But you also didn't have it you didn't and you still don't. I mean, I think I just saw you got to 15,000 which is great Twitter followers, but it's yeah. also very possible that they they'd have no idea.
2: Yeah, I'm sure they don't. I mean, they don't yeah. and what do they care? Like people said like all kinds of things about them right. for years and years and years and years. So what so what is like, you know, something that I say matter to them at all. And again, in that moment, she like thanked me for the show and I thanked her for coming. And that was it. I didn't say That's anything right. beyond that. You know, I I certainly don't.
0: You didn't say yes, we can.
2: I didn't say yes, we can. I didn't say like anything beyond thank. really thank you for coming. I appreciate yeah. you for being here. Because I did appreciate her, appreciate her for being there. And like so many of the, the people in the room really, really love her. Like, and I just have to leave it at that because it, there's just truly no value in, in me doing it and going and taking it any further than that.
0: Aaron, you should next time you're fighting, like with Mark Townsend, who you know smeared you for having disinformation, you should just say, be like, Mark, what do you think of this song called Inner White Girl? <laughs> or what do you think of the song Judith? I don't want
1: to do that because I don't want to risk liking uh, right. people like that. <laughs> And if we if we bond over a strange loop, then I'm in trouble because I strange loop I've listened to it on loop. Yeah. I love it so much, Michael. In your Tony speech, you talked about when you wrote Strange Loop, a strange loop. You wanted to create a life raft for yourself, and I'm wondering if now you think and have seen how you've actually created a life raft for many people who have really felt seen by this musical in ways that they weren't before.
2: Yeah, that's been kind of, that's sort of connected to what we were talking about before, that like so many people come up to me and said, you know, I felt seen by the show, it, like this reflected some aspect of my life or my family, or like this one guy came up to me and told me that, you know, his family had never really accepted him for being gay for many years. And then he like brought some of them to the show and that the show sort of helped them start a dialogue in their family. And that's like, that was like really overwhelming for me to hear because it's not that like, I didn't think that something like that could happen, but that that's like a real thing that somebody said happened in their life as a result of, you know, watching this thing that I had spent all these years and years and years and years working on and that I had started from a truly just for myself sort of place. So that that means a lot to me. And I don't, and I think that that's, significant. And it's and it's why like, you know, if there are people who I may disagree with politically or culturally or whatever, if, if it if the show means something to them, I can't dismiss that totally. Like, I just I do think it's just like a human aspect, particularly with art that like, that can just cut through quite a lot. I mean, it doesn't mean that like the disagreements are not still there. But that it's not nothing. And I've I've had to really sort of internalize that, that like those human to human moments are like really, really important. And I treasure them.
1: Are you able to tell us any stories without giving away any names or identities of your most uh, frustrating interactions with industry types that might represent just how difficult and dysfunctional the musical theater world is or the entertainment world is?
2: I think like the... The the biggest frustrations that I've had are, they're not necessarily around like breaking through, but they're like what they. Big frustration I have is the director of the of a strange loop is Stephen Brackett and he is white, and there's been over the years, even to Broadway, even with the success of the show, there are these people, these voices that come in and are like, why do you have a white director? how how dare a white director direct this? A white director can't, a white director is like what's, somebody made you have the white director. You thought you needed a white director. And I'm, and like, and the sort of narrowness of that, the way that people talk about that completely ignorantly without understanding the history of how he came to be involved with the piece or what his contributions had been or how valuable his contributions had been or or what our collaboration is like really, I find quite infuriating because the implication in it, whether they say it or not, is that me, a Black musical theater writer, doesn't, is like a baby who doesn't, who is incapable of making his own decisions or of uh, having integrity to do whatever it is that he wants in his own work. It's that what becomes important is that there's a white person involved and that they're they're sort of in charge of me or in charge of my musical in that. And so that's been a frustration of mine because I always have to be like, motherfucker, shut the fuck up. Like I'm, nobody tells me what to do ever. I'm fully, fully capable of like making my own decisions and of collaborating with somebody white, black, brown, whatever. And I have done it my entire career. And so that's a big frustration because Cause it's, it speaks to sort of that, the narrowness that so many people have in their minds and the sort of like closet racism that they have, even as they might think that them making that sort of judgment is somehow speaking truth to power. It's actually a kind of racism in and of itself because it takes me out of the equation. So that's like, that's been, I would say, if I had to name any frustration, that's been like the biggest one and it and and it, and it and it also, you know, disregards Steven's work. And Stephen has, I feel, been one of the most respectful, one of the most patient and sort of like um collaborative people that I've met. It doesn't mean that he's like been perfect the entire time, but like he's been like the most ideal collaborator that I could have had for this piece um to date. So, that's that's something that I feel strongly about
0: who are some of the people who you would not be able to talk to if they came to your show and to hear the rest of the interview please go to usefulidiots.substack.com that was great huh
1: that was awesome so good to hear from michael so happy for him and all of his success it's amazing to see someone with so much talent and so uncompromising and so much independence, making it to the top. I, I mean, know, he is weird. the toast it's of the town the right now. Doesn't happen very often, if ever. And it's amazing to see him succeed.
0: And guys, you're definitely going to want to become uh, Substack subscribers. You get to hear Aaron nail one of his, uh, nail one of his harassers. I'm not going <laughs> to give away too much, but someone who has been very unfair, written a hit piece against Aaron. Uh, Aaron, Aaron catches him on, on camera.
1: I called him. I called
0: him and we have the videotape. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for watching.
1: And for more, go to usefulidiots.substack.com.
0: Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod. And use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.